This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. And today I have a guest, Yahia Bababini. I hope I didn't mess that up too badly. You said it beautifully. Who is a writer, an Egyptian who's come to America as a young adult, eight critically acclaimed books of poetry and prose. He's an aphorist and an essayist. And most recently, he sent me Revolutions of the Heart, Literary, Cultural, and Spiritual, which is just a treasure trove of little gems some smaller pieces, some slightly larger pieces. And to begin speaking about it, it's hard to know where to choose at this banquet table, where to pick. But thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. Thank you for having me and for overhearing me too. And also I want to make sure that we tell listeners about this book being the book for January in 2021. And meeting up with you in February on the 3rd for a book club discussion. And that's exciting. That'll be really fun. What's nice is that it's recorded. So anytime someone wants to come back and listen, or it can be embedded on your webpage, even or, or any webpage, yeah, that it can be revisited and enjoyed over and over. You define aphorisms as what is worth quoting from the soul's dialogue with itself. Mm. And you also say that you hope it might serve as a form of peace offering and balm mm. in these troubled times. And for people who are not quite aware or quite have a handle on what aphorisms are, perhaps you can just explain that a little bit and then speak about what that offers us today. Well, it's it's basically, um, it, it has currency without being recognized for what it is. So anything, when people have these quotes or inspirational sayings or even what they, you know, call witty, wise one-liners, that's an aphorism. If If it doesn't have a name attached to it and it's a maxim or a proverb and we assume, you know, some great sage said it, then... It's in another category of instruction. But, but an aphorism, there's certainly more people who are aware of what they are and who use them consciously now than when I began writing them, let's say 30 years ago at this point, as a teenager, when I don't think anyone even knew what that even meant. But I grew up reading people like Gubran and Nietzsche and Blake and Kafka and Pascal who tended to write in aphorisms. And they basically, I mean, Wilde uh, has some definition, Oscar Wilde, about how he had summed all of existence in a phrase. I do not presume to sum all existence in a phrase in any of my aphorisms. But it's this, it's this idea of trying to encapsulate a, a great conversation. And that's why I define it as a conversation with the soul's conversation with itself, really. So you go off you're thinking about something, dreaming, meditating, possibly weeks, years even. And then at some point, there's one line that you can extract from all that, that can stand alone by itself. 
that will be a key or a door or a window or an invitation for a complete stranger to have that conversation with themselves. So a good aphorism doesn't, uh, in my understanding of it, at least and everyone's got their own definition, is just a suggestion for you to sort of to, to spark your own conversation uh, with, with, your, with your soul, so to speak. And that's why I really appreciate reading uh, books of aphorisms where there's few on the page and a lot of blank space because it's understood that they are in need of diluting. And the way you dilute it is by bringing in everything you know or suspect you know, or just breathing alongside it. Right, and allowing it to sort of sink deeply into the the marrow mm. of, of mm-hmm. you so that it doesn't just glide yeah. past. They're, they're deceptive right. that way because I think people are seduced by the brevity. And so they think, oh, this is just a right. dalliance. You know, we'll have, we'll have a, a casual affair with an aphorism. But that's not the case. <laughs> if, if it decides to commit and if you give it the proper attention, I mean, I have aphorisms that, have remained with me for life and have and have shaped the way I think and be and see the world. So it's 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 deceptively slight in the sense that it's a handful of words, but but brevity and profundity needn't be obviously mutually exclusive. What would you say is a few of your most guiding aphorisms, either for this moment now or over a period of many years? Oh man. Oh, I was hoping <laughs> you would make to... choose among my children and my parents. Um, okay. <laughs> Longing is a big one that got me early. I want to say in my teens, Heidegger defines longing as the agony of the nearness of the distant. And that really did a number on me as a, let's say, 18-year-old. It's this idea that it's just within reach. It's just within reach. And, and because it's, it's not, there's this ache, this tremendous ache, and that ache can, you can substitute longing. I mean, longing is big enough to, to encompass all sorts of love. So we can begin with human love and go all the way up to the divine. But it's this idea of something so tremendous within, you know, apparently within uh, arm's reach, but yet tantalizingly just out of reach. And so you are possibly longing for life. Um, that's one. Rumi's got to get in there. Um, fairly simple one that, that also struck me uh, early was this idea of what you are seeking is seeking you. Um, I, I didn't quite know what to make of it initially, but this idea of not being alone in your longing uh, or in your search that you only have to meet halfway or three quarters of the way or one third of the way, the, the beloved, the, the other uh, magnetic force that's tugging you. And it somehow, it really was a very consoling notion to think that whatever you're longing for is also longing for you. And that's why you're longing for it because mm. there is that pull. So that really was tremendous. And it's something that one can stay with for a, a decade, a lifetime, if they wish, meditating on it. Um, maybe also something from Nietzsche, who I'm 
I, I hope I've escaped his clutches after a good two decades or so, but, um, but still I return to him every now and then very carefully. Uh, he has this line about, we must be careful when fighting with monsters, lest we become monsters ourselves. And when we gaze into the abyss, we should be careful that the abyss in turn does not gaze into us. I think this is a sort of a cautionary aphorism, maybe for this moment, and this moment can go on indefinitely until we decide we want to move on from this moment, politically, culturally, this idea of, of, of how, we, how we fight a battle defines us and also uh, the danger of, of gazing into an abyss too deeply, whether that abyss as uh, uh, the name of a person or a party or a way of being. You talk about this a bit in your book, these first loves that are the darkness sort of hinting at the light, but mm. yet they come to an end for you. You leave them behind like, like old loves because they're really not very good for you after all. Mm -hmm. You describe it sort of like an adolescent period. Yeah. For that, I really relate to you as well. I find it is kind of a, not to degrade anybody who is into him still in, mm -hmm. in adulthood, but I find it's sort of spiritually kind of necessary, but also adolescent as well in just that there isn't really hope in his ideas. And, and I think he had an end, his own physical end. Yeah. He came to his own conclusion and that's kind of, I feel like, where his ideas ultimately lead us. It's such a difficult subject to speak of, but I'll try to do it um, lightly. The way he praised right. lightness, but, but, but failed frequently to live up to his own uh, advice. Um, there's the seduction of grammar, of language, of, of being able to say a great deal. I mean, he speaks about aphorisms being peaks and for that one must have long legs to just go from one mm. peak to the next he speaks about being able to say in 10 lines or less what people do not say what people say in a book and then he adds for braggadocio mm. an effect what people cannot say in a book so as someone mm. predisposed mm. to the aphoristic mindset and wisdom literature in general as an impressionable mm. teenager he did me and he, Dostoevsky, <laughs> and, and the rest of, of you know, that uh, biker crew, that, those dangerous, those mad guys. Um, and, when I, and when you say adolescence, I'm, I'm slightly ashamed to say that my adolescence, my, you know, punky, rebellious adolescence lasted until my early 30s. So I, 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 was, I was late that way to shake it off because I was very much under the spell of it and the rebelliousness mm -hmm. and... It had to do with also where I grew up, uh, Egypt, where there was what I sensed a kind of, um, let's say, disingenuous religiosity, which I found offensive. So I thought, ah, to heck with all that. You know, let me keep company with the existentialists. But right. then I realized at some point that this defiance is an unfreedom. This is, you know, I'm tethered to the thing I wish to be free of. I'm still in a state of reaction continuously. So yeah. one moves on when one realizes at some point it's a dead end. And uh, I think for me, the opening came through uh, Dao. 
Tao Te Ching specifically uh, reading that and realizing here's something that's that's pre-religious because I needed something pre-religious. I wasn't ready for any sort of religious mm -hmm. context that that can be a way out that's fruitful in its contradictions, that's vast, but that's also not angry or fighting with the world. And mm -hmm. um, and and from there, you know, I was uh, fortunate because of my presumably my background, to lend an ear to the Sufi poets. Uh, yes. and, and as a poet, it was easier to approach it as poetry. But then at some point you realize this isn't really poetry. This is, this is an entire life, an alternative lifestyle and a way of being and a way of mm -hmm. seeing the world and, uh, and giving up that fight, surrendering. And then you re you recognize that the the way ahead is a beginning anew, and and everything you knew must be discarded, mm. and this this great scaffolding that you built up has to now be taken down, and uh, in in humility you recognize, you know that was a season. You said something about uh, adolescence being you know a period one goes through, and I think it's the same with cynicism or nihilism, or all of these corrosive isms, which mm -hmm. may for a while sharpen our mind uh, or all, almost act like a kind of vaccine to the suffering of the world. But then one has to give them up and let them go because mm -hmm. you recognize that too much of it is a poison and mm. there's another season awaiting you. Kind of riffing off of that, you said in these skeptical times, poems are hymns, and for me too, poetry is how I pray. And uh, there's quite a bit about Rumi and the Sufis and how accessible maybe we are in post-religious times or perhaps post-institutional um, times because there's a lot of mistrust of institutions that were once sacred and maybe we don't, uh, at least in the West, uh, there's a lot of um, cynicism, I suppose, but it's it's more than. I did. I guest edited an issue of World Literature Today, which mm -hmm. was sort of about um, belief and belief specifically in a time when there is that great skepticism. And how do we how do we negotiate um, finding a way to accept that there may be another realm? Uh, one has to be very careful with the terms that they choose because so so many have been overused or misused and robbed of their numinous aspect. But um, you find that even you know so-called hardened atheists are susceptible to awe or to you know the majesty of nature or or the mystery of space. And so I I sort of got to a point where I thought the challenge here is is really not to name the thing. Perhaps the last word you should utter on your deathbed would be, you know, the G word. <laughs> but before then, live in such a manner as to honor it or or allow it to come fully into into presence in your life and in those lives that you touch. So I think I think Sufism can do that because on one level, yes, it is, it is sort of 
meaningless to speak of of saints, for example, or mystics, without recognizing that they are the fruits of tradition. They may have taken it to an entirely luminous, you know, unpredictable space, but they didn't spring out of nowhere. They 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 come from this soil, and and it's there's a kind of mean spiritedness to rob them of their maternal soil. No, of course they come from there and and they needed to go through those training wheels and that those building blocks to go and spring into this, you know, uh, ether. But 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 I think uh, mystics generally tend to agree. I think Eckhart has a great line about the mystics of the world agreeing where the theologians argue. Um, and 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 there's this notion that on 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 some level, yes, you know, there's the law and there's the letter and there's all the small, petty things we can argue about. And then there's a vast space that doesn't even recognize these distinctions, and it just recognizes the state that you're in or that you bring to it. You say on page. 24 of the essay, Revolutions of the Heart, mystical art addresses a mute center in us, initiating us into hardly communicable secrets, numinous states of being and knowing, gnosis, at the very limits of our self or ego. That is really a lot of what you're talking about. People who can't access, say, religion, qua religion, or some doctrinal think perhaps because of some sort of spiritual woundedness or injury or assault that came Mm -hmm. at them or something that they gave up on. But there is still something in art, in in mystical art, like you're saying with the Sufi poets, Mm -hmm. that addresses the mute center that we're talking about, that even the atheists who in my mind, argue a bit too much with someone they don't believe in. <laughs> ah. uh, but, and I've had my moments of, of atheism, I'll say. Yeah. And I've had to kill a bunch of gods that were idols, you know, that. It's a season. It's a season of the soul. But to remain yeah. there, that's that's the unfortunate mm. thing. Um, I couldn't have asked, by the way, uh, for a greater assist than that passage that you just read. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I hope to even be equal to it because, you know, when you write, one is in a, in a very concentrated state where you can, again, maybe possibly go deeper than you can in conversation or maybe not, or maybe not. That was everything I hoped to say um, in, regards, in regards to this. And I, I think... Art can do that. I, I know art can do that because because art doesn't ask you to name the thing or to choose the thing. When you talk about a mute center, one people, irrespective of their faith background, if if if, if they even recognize one, know what it means to stand before a painting, or or to let music wash over you, or read a book that is like a giant spoon stirring you to your depths and you don't even know what it is. It can be in a foreign language. Mm. You might not even understand the opera. Mm. You you may not be versed in that particular technique that the artist is using to express himself, but but you know 
that you're standing before something that is that is rearranging you, that is granting you access that you normally don't have in the day-to-day -day life. And I think this is something that art and art in the service of spirituality and art that is not consciously in the service of spirituality can do. It helps us to access those difficult to reach places like you were scrubbing yourself with a loofah to get that mm. tricky spot on your lower back or or or, or behind your wing uh, <laughs> bone or whatever it's called and and art can do that be because conversation is words are are, are limited mm -hmm. but a certain arrangement of words or or a mixture of colors or sounds somehow through some form of mystery and magic that remain, that elude the artist who mm -hmm. allegedly created them, mm -hmm. can take you to that tremendous space where we all recognize, okay, here now is something beyond my day-to-day. -day. This is, mm -hmm. maybe we don't have names for it, but this is the indestructible space that if I remain here long enough, offers me some kind of vision or transformation. Mm. That's why it, art and spirituality interests me deeply. Yes. And just as you speak about art also isn't an escape from reality, it's the opposite. You mentioned it's an attempt to mm. animate it. As Joseph Brodsky said, it is spirit seeking mm. flesh but finding words. And you said, it's not antithetical to reality, but complementary. And that's sometimes what you'll hear from people who are not taking the time to sit with anything, either aesthetic or just artistic expression, because they'll say, oh, well, that's, you know, head in the clouds. It's not reality. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's dangerous. I mean, I know that people dismiss art and society at large by, by not uh, not paying artists, but maybe that's to their advantage mm -hmm. because the starving and the ascetic lifestyle is a is a queer kind of monasticism right. on behalf of the artist. Right. Um, but I think this notion of art being useless, I mean, I, I can't even think of anything, but again, I'm biased, <laughs> right. uh, that is more useful than art. Uh, the fact that we reward art makers or creators the way we do says something about our priorities. I mean, um, sport is magnificent and, and it can also be transcendental to see what we can achieve through a body, uh, entertainment, theater, art. But it's, it's staggering when I hear, especially in America, because I don't think in Egypt they, they, they have figures like this. Mm. You know, this person made, I don't know, 20 million off of, I don't know, this action film mm -hmm. or to sign up to this team or, you know, good for them, you know, terrific. Meanwhile, teachers and artists are, are barely scraping by and people are trying to sort of get them to do what they do for free and tell them it's not relevant. And I'm thinking, but what sustains you? What really sustains you when you're done sort of distracting yourself to death and running away from yourself and everything else? What sustains you if not art and how it helps you access the spirit? You who is so uh, adamant about not recognizing the life of a spirit or art, what really sustains you? Mm. So, so I, I, you know, this is, 
this is how I feel, but I think it may even be bad form to mention that we're meant to do this kind of thing in quiet <laughs> and like, what are they called? The untouchables and sweep our traces as we walk so that no one sees our footsteps and they think they got there by themselves. <laughs> oh, so, right. so I'm fine. I'm fine doing it because I don't understand half of what I write anyway. <laughs> I'm still trying to live up to mm. it. Well, do you find that, um, you know, one of the reasons why I call my program Spark My Muse is because I mm -hmm. am kind of giving a hat tip to the creative process that appears to be not something we do by ourselves, but something that we cooperate yes. with. And that, that mystery is there. And And I think all creators, true creators, understand that some of it's luck, you know, so, some of it's chance or luck or co-creating and some of it is is them but they know they can't take the full credit for it. what's your percentage what do you think percentages i'm always curious uh when i mean because i i this is endlessly fascinating well i can just speak for myself but i know that mm. when it's gonna it sounds a little weird but i i am a little weird and i <laughs> but i feel like Th it's that's why i'm at ease speaking right. to you <laughs> I feel when I'm the most deeply, you could say, in flow or in the spirit or whatever, uh -huh. that it's yeah. almost like channeling. Yeah. Right. And it, it ranges in a spectrum for me personally creating. But when I am actually, I won't even remember what I've written. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it's perfect, that it comes out perfectly. There are mistakes, yeah. but yeah. I will go back and be taught by it. And that doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense to me. So I just feel like I'm just a conduit and I'm not going to bother yeah. taking the credit. I'm just happy that it came out, but I don't really, I'll probably, I don't know if I'll even leave this in editing it in. Cause it sounds really presumptuous to act like, well, I'm a vessel of the Lord or something. But well, I, I wish, I wish I had said that it in because I, I really think that all the, all the artists uh, thinkers, uh, reachers, seekers, any whatever name you come up with uh, for, for for these types have have been able to say in utter humility mm -hmm. that they don't fully know what they know. Mm -hmm. They know without knowing. I mean, this is the mystic truth mm -hmm. to know without knowing. And if this is the mystic truth at the highest mm -hmm. level. Then, then for the artist of necessity, it has to be a lower rung on the ladder. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that what you do is perfect because the understanding is it's come through you. Mm -hmm. So it's come filtered through your imperfections. Mm -hmm. But what it teaches is above your own head. That's the humility. Not mm -hmm. to say that, oh, you know, I, I, I'm just a vessel uh, of, of, of pure life. <laughs> no, I'm, I myself am learning mm -hmm. from from what it is that I allegedly have created. Mm, yes. And in it, even muddied, clumsy form, there is something here that I rescued or, or I sort of summoned up. And that's why it's, I think, if anything, the work that we do, cooperation is a wonderful way of putting it. If there is cooperation and the, it is a cooperative to dance, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's love. Mm -hmm. So of course there has to be cooperation. Mm -hmm. It's just readying yourself to receive. Yeah. So the work you do is not 
the work on the page or the work that later becomes associated with a name or a career or, or whatever that, that means, it's actually someone who made themselves ready mm. to receive, mm -hmm. who lived in such a manner that they were worthy to be visited mm -hmm. frequently mm -hmm. by something that that was far more noble uh, than than they mm -hmm. are. Right. I think for me, it's just being a good listener, and in a way, it doesn't take oh. it doesn't take special skill, but it might take practice to show up, be a good listener, and not get in yeah. my own way. That can really hubris can can be the thing that blocks that or sure or just ambition like my own ambition this is fantastic well then nothing will come then after that yeah no i i think getting out of your way is a, is a big one i was going to ask you a little bit more about to go back to what we were talking about prior to me hitting record which was poetry in times of crisis and vision mm. that is this unblinking witness that I think is more important now than ever if we are in a time of facts or just whatever the agenda is, if somebody has an agenda, that's the truth or yeah. something like that, is that poetry can be a revealing witness to something deeper, even that something that isn't saying, but is something that creates a revelation in a person to understand the truth. Mm. And maybe you can go into a little bit of what you were speaking of in that one. That's uh, that's another one. I mean, you're hitting all of these. These are eternal conversations. You and I could speak about this for a good 30 years exactly. and not even touch the surface of exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> it would be a worthwhile conversation to approach. So I remember being... I think it was the Mantle. It was the Mantle uh, magazine journal who asked me to to try to put this piece together, and it was called. Came up with the title of Journalism of the Spirit, and I had had this conflict coming from where I come from, Egypt, North Africa, the Middle East, etc., where you know it's always politically in a state of upheaval of feeling guilty, of feeling perpetually guilty. What am I doing? What are these poems doing as a kind of action to speak to change? Uh, like, how are, they, how are they addressing real-world problems? And this was my, my way of sort of sitting down, not speaking of my work, but rather speaking of the work of Mahmoud Darwish, and, and other poets, for example, addressing Libya and other hot spots, Egypt too, of course, how is poetry allowed to function in a, in a political moment? Because politics is, is headlines and it's now, now, now. And we know that good art and poorly digested politics don't work well together. So how do you how do you digest the politics real quick and make good art out of it? And 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 my way out of this was to remember that 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 the space that poetry occupied or art generally speaking was was kind of timeless was larger than that 
And so it was a matter of spirit. And this is at a time when I wasn't comfortable using the word spirit when I wrote this piece, because I was still in the clutch of, you know, my existentialist mentors who wouldn't allow me to, to use that. So I was thinking, okay, well, what is it then? And I think, I think what it is is that you're addressing the soul. So we talk now about America, and we've, we've heard people say this, and I certainly agree with this, that America is fighting for its soul. Or if the word fighting is too aggressive for you, it's wrestling or it's seeking or whatever. But it, it's the soul of America that's at stake, not just who becomes the next president. Because we know that 50%, as we are speaking, are more or less on the side of the current president or have you know, seen him for who he is and said, you know what? We're going to give him another chance. So what to do with that? What to do with that? This is when you soul search, when it's not just about Pennsylvania or, or a Democrat or Republic. Or, it's about the soul of a people. And the soul of a people is always going to be outside of the constraints of the moment because it's vaster than that because because your soul doesn't belong to this realm or time so i think that's what poetry can do poetry can sort of um, address those regions that you normally overlook in the day-to-day and hopefully and this is why the book when i call it revolutions i'm not just thinking of the political revolutions or even of the cultural revolutions or even of the personal ones. But there are so many upheavals that we go through on a personal and public uh, level that determine who we are and who we become. So art can, can help us with these revolutions too, as can activists on the street saying not in our name or demanding uh, rights, civil rights, etc. So it's, it's, it's a combination of things. Right. To underscore that, you write, poetry lends us a third metaphysical eye, one that collapses distances, at once reminding us of our essential selves and who we can become. This vision provides more insight than mere sight. And yeah, uh, we're habituated, I think, to not reflect. Mm -hmm. So anything that can create moments of reflection, and art does that very well, whether it's drama or, or film or poetry, or, you know, standing in front of a painting, those things can kind of interrupt the frenzy. (laughs) And we need to interrupt the frenzy because the frenzy is relentless between 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 television and social media. Mm-hmm. One more reason I'm grateful, as you mentioned earlier, that I wasn't raised in the age of social media, is one cannot hold on to a state for long enough without these interruptions. Mm-hmm. It's good to be connected. It's good to have access on the moment and telepathically speak with the world at large and the rest of it. But it's also good to be in one place with one thought and go deep Mm. and stay with it. And it's hard to do that when everything is vying for our attention and telling us, 
you know, over here, you know, everything's winking at you mm. and nudging you and grabbing you by the hair <laughs> or the throat and saying, now look at me, listen to me. No, no, I need to come to you, uh, frenzied you in a calm, centered place. And the reason I can do that, or the way I can do that is by leaving you for a moment or two so I can have presence and, and focus to listen to you and and I need my silence and my my depth and sometimes you just have to almost not leave the real world but revisit it intermittently and not be at its mercy because there is another world and another dimension which is unhurried and which is more profound go alongside a tree and get into that pace like the slow tree growth because it's nothing like mm -hmm. what we're used to with our fast-paced life but we're more alike to a tree than we are to twitter or our computers or uh, the, the tree will not tell you what's trending this hour <laughs> right it right and it's there is a stability there that we mm -hmm. have to be like this is the real world this one yeah this tree will outlast me and that's real. And I think this matter of calling things spiritual or soul, I used to be also very embarrassed and reluctant to use those words when I thought that my audience yeah. wasn't Christian or wasn't religious because I thought, I know I'm going to be made fun of or disparaged, yeah. but I realized, and I think it was Krista Tippett, my, totally my hero, who said uh things along the lines of what we're really talking about is aliveness. Mm. Spirituality is aliveness. It's that part of us, that yeah. deepest alive part. And when we're talking about the soul, it's also everything about us that's seen and unseen, but also our connections among and between each other too. It's the network. Back in the olden days when they'd say, uh, ship sank they would say a hundred souls were lost yeah i st i still use it in that context yeah the lives it means the whole living yeah. self right. the person represented and all of the 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 maybe bereavement of their family would be attached to that life and that is really what we're talking about something that is more real than what mm -hmm. a lot of us interact with in any given moment in the day. I think it's interesting how we're made to feel self-conscious or, or, or apologetic for using such terms. Mm -hmm. And I can understand because the world is, is not ideal and these terms are bandied about and misused, etc. <laughs> and yet there is absolutely no shame in, in sort of behaving in the worst possible way. Uh, and you see it all the time on television. I mean, I, I couldn't even believe what are the, they called reality shows, et cetera. When I first came to the States as an 18 year old and I'd watch this stuff, I'd say, no, you know, sure, no, no, they're actors. No, they're not really behaving. Mm. I mean, this is, this is scripted. And this is, this is till, till yesterday when I, when I watch stuff on television or on social media, there's somehow a safety, like the, the safety in numbers, where you can misbehave, we can misbehave together, and that's okay, 
because we're all in this together. We can all be, you know, ugly or loud or crass or hateful or whatever it is. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but but, but to actually to take a a more uh, sort of delicate, uh, sensitive. So it's not even to talk about spiritual because because that's that's just one uh, name or extension of it that we have to be ashamed of you know we shouldn't reveal you know because this is cheesy to say what is, what on earth is cheesy mean first of all i love cheese so anything cheesy you know yes bring it on more cheese please you know i i never i never quite got it even though you know i was teased etc but i'm at the point at 47 not 57 or 67 mercifully where you know i don't care if the, if it's regarded as cheesy or or sentimental or sappy or whatever else you want because for me you know i'm thinking this is what you're giving me a hard time about but not you know what is what is crass and ugly it's it's the it's what's fine that's what you take exception to so so i'm fine with that so you don't you don't have to at least when we're talking whoever else is listening they can determine what they're fine with but i'm in i'm i'm at peace with cheesy sappy and everything else that they wish to ridicule uh, what is fine uh, in this world or tender yeah it's it's the tender parts it's the unseen parts it's the parts we're afraid of and all those things that we don't want to look at those are all spiritual things too it's this fantastic quote about the spiritual journey being all about what you don't want to feel, Mm. what you don't want to look at, what you don't want to feel. The truth is we all have interior lives, spiritual lives, or however you want to put it. There's, we all have tender places. We might not be allowed to show them, but for the people who are okay with that, uh, you might get ridiculed, but it's kind of like, well, I'm just being honest. It's just, if you don't want to be honest, yeah. you have to go a different route then, and you have to protect yourself a lot more. One night, one you know, late one night, um, and I'm with a, 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 an elder journalist from South America, uh, who I've, I'm meeting for the first time. Boozy night, late, and talking, you know, everything. I mean. It, hard questions, existentialist, et cetera, you know, very suspicious of government and people and the rest of it. And I'm with this hardened atheist. So it's just those two guys. And it's it's tough. And I am begging to be released to go to sleep. It's, I want to say two to four in the morning. But I'm also thinking there's a side of me thinking this is human being at its raw essence how dare you care for sleep you fool stay see them through and i'm staying and and the the elder journalist wants me to stay outside the bathroom while he's there because we don't want to miss a moment of conversation and the hardened atheist asks me to read a poem of my own and i'm thinking are you sure i didn't think you even cared for poetry and i read this poem and it's not a particularly good poem i know of at least of my work, what is what is better than other uh, pieces, and the hardened atheist is in tears, and I'm thinking, how? And and then I realize, because in this particular moment, they've allowed themselves to open themselves up to 
this particular territory. And even this so-so poem of mine was able to get in there and do its quiet work mm. and reach those magnificent interior spaces that they have locked up or denied. And, and again, you realize it's, you know, we're, we're all in this together. How, how, how dare we turn our back on anyone? Mm. So, so I stayed, I stayed for as long and as late as they wanted me to. And I think I was wrecked for the next week, <laughs> you know, because of lack of sleep, uh, et cetera. Oh, you're providing soul care. And that's kind mm. of what happens. I find myself in these similar situations too, as, as a creator or just a person who's attentive to the things of the unseen world or whatever you want to say, is that people are starving and they're dying of thirst, and yes. then you just accompany them. Yeah. And they know whatever they're fighting, whatever battles they're in, or, or trying circumstances, they see that offer of friendship or whatever is happening, mm. and they, they want to be accompanied, no matter what defenses they put up. Being able to be open to those, those raw and and even dangerous places in ourselves where we're going to mm -hmm. expose ourselves and we're going to expose the truth of, of witness, essentially, then it, it creates a place to meet other people in that same sort of risky territory. And it, mm. it costs something. I think it costs artists something to do that, but it, it also works kind of like a hospital. You know, I think um, for our times, when people feel um, alienated and distant from each other or suspicious or, you know, which side are you on? <laughs> you know, um, we need more than ever to be these bridge builders to, to not the, even the other political side or something, but just to each other's hearts. You know, as you're saying this, Lisa, what I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of dancing. I love to dance. And, and I think everyone secretly loves to dance, even if they don't. Even if they say, oh, I don't know how to dance, whatever that means. It's the enthusiasm. It's not the ability. It's, it's just the release of it. And I'm thinking when you say um, that we, we sort of have to take care of each other or provide soul care, I can see how soul care as a term is, is, is tremendous. But I'm just sort of seeing it on the ter on, in terms of dancing because yeah. that's... that's easy for yeah. me and i'm thinking it's just being it's being the first person on the dance floor because you love the song because you know that once you're there they're gonna get there too and they want to go there and it takes one person to make a fool of themselves yeah. if need be or just to be there first mm -hmm. and and then they will come and then once they're there. They don't even care that you are there because they're dancing. Mm. They're dancing and they're free and they're happy. And it just took that moment of you looking the fool. If you look the fool, I don't, frankly, I mean, I, you know, I don't even know what that means anymore because I think you pay the price as artists or as first person on the dance floor very early on. <laughs> And initially, it's terrifying. It's like, what? I'm going to write about my inner feelings. I'm going to expose <laughs> all of my abilities and so that I'm an easy target. 
And then once you do it, you recognize you are everyone. Mm. There is no you and them. You are everyone. Mm. It just so happens that, you know, you happen to have this name attached to you and this particular skill of sets, even though you're hopeless at everything else in life. And they will recognize, they will allow you to do that because, oh, you're the writer or you're the dancer on the first one on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. But, or I don't usually do this kind of thing, but I guess because you think it may be a good idea, why not? Maybe just this one song, <laughs> whatever, whatever, who cares? Who's looking? It's dark anyway, you know? Yeah, it's really an act of hospitality to create yeah. an environment yeah. that is that's welcoming and says it, there is no risk here. You you can just come up here mm-hmm. and be free. And yeah. Yeah. it's but you know to do that you have to do your own work first. I don't know if you ever had to, but I felt very insecure. Wind up feeling like you're not going to do anything right. And you feel like, I don't want to put myself out there. I, I just get hurt no. if I do that. But then later you're like, well, I can't control what people think anyway. So I might as well just do what I, I just do what I think I should do. And it might look stupid, but then so what? You know, so with- uh, as an artist, at least one is more sensitive or one, one is more, you know, you, you have these insecurities. Of course you've got them. That's why you can go to those places. And so you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're prone or vulnerable to, you know, ridicule, et cetera. But then you realize that that's at some point, hopefully one realizes this at some point, that that's such a small price of admission to pay. And, you know, to hell with your personal self-conscious insecurities that's just a weed uh, or rather the self-consciousness is a weed in the garden of self-awareness self-awareness and then other awareness and then life awareness is so much bigger than however foolish you might look momentarily to some people so yeah it does take time and and i am guilty of trying to postpone that time for as long as i could <laughs> well i'm glad i'm not alone in that <laughs> Oh, my goodness. That's why I told you I had a late adolescence into my late 20s, early 30s. There's so much that one can read. Mm -hmm. And and yet that doesn't. You need to experience a thing and and everything is like that. Love is like that. Transformation is like that. Humility is like that. you know, even forgiveness. These are things that you have to get. You have to know for yourself what it feels like to get there. People can tell you all about it. And if they tell you about it compellingly enough, you may want to hazard that Mm. experience. But yeah, short of experiencing things for yourself, um, you just, I mean, I think that's why over time, one one develops a, a, a deeper compassion for people is because you realize I am that person that, loud mouth, that uh, nest of neurosis. I am that person who's convinced that, you know, they have the right answer or they're in a position to judge because we've, we've all sort of experienced that. But hopefully you move past that and you realize, you know, this isn't helpful to growth or understanding of myself and life. 
Well, that's good for anybody listening in their un- under 45, that there is things to look forward to as you age and experience life. If you're paying attention, it gets mm-hmm. better and you can come into your own as you experience more of life and realize kind of what matters and what doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a time release capsule. I mean, there's no way you can force the thing. One tries to force the thing because they are in a difficult circumstance or because they're suffering or because they want a way out. But you just, it's not all in your hands. Again, what you are seeking is also seeking you. So you do your part and then you hope that you get lucky and a hand is extended to you in the dark. This has been amazing, and I hate to end it, but I think it might be time. Uh, Maybe you can tell listeners where good places are to find you. First of all, this has been as easy as speaking to myself in my head. (laughs) So that's how how much I've enjoyed this. (laughs) Where can they find me? I don't have a centralized website. I've somehow been wary of that over the years. Um, I do have a new, the new book is Revolutions of the Heart. It's kind of an anthology. So all of my books in the past have been either poetry or essays or aphorisms or maybe conversations. This is everything. It's sort of the full measure. So, okay, if there's one point of entry, this book can be the last book first instead of the first book uh, uh, first. I guess just go online wherever wherever you like. People are wary of Amazon, and I understand that. And now there's uh, other ways of shopping. You can go to the publisher. You can go to it's on bookshop.org. All all my books, I believe, are on bookshop.org, and they're all independent publishers. And whatever you find, if you do a Google search with my funny name, whatever you find is whatever was meant to speak to you at the moment. If you're interested, you'll find something that uh, holds your attention. If you're not, I hope at least this hasn't, uh, you know, been a waste of time for you. They would have turned it off 10 minutes in probably. (laughs) There you go. We're not addressing those people. Thank you very much, Lisa. And thank you for the good work that you're doing and for sort of just reminding people in your in your way, in your enthusiastic, non-dogmatic way, that these are these are subjects that are worth entertaining and and that are transformative and beautiful. And we need beauty because it heals, especially in times of unrest and divide and violence. <laughs>